next Sunday, if we have the same number of people for Sunday school, the men uh, will meet here in this section, and the women will take the fellowship hall because the room is not big enough for them. We had one lesson, and women are already complaining. Did I say that out loud? I'm sorry. <laughs> Anyways, no, we need to have the room, and we can just rearrange things. So the men will meet over here, and the women in the in the uh, <clears throat> fellowship hall, I suppose, where they can drink coffee, and we can't, but whatever. <clears throat> I'm totally over it. <clears throat> John 12. <clears throat> John chapter 12, verse 20. <clears throat> These strange statements... To die is to live. To die is to live. John 12 and verse 20. Okay. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir... We wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, or amen, amen, I say to you, unless the grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... It remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor Him. The Father will honor Him. This passage uh, sheds great light upon the word hour. And there's going to be a changing of the hour in the life of the Lord Jesus. So an event happens and then everything changes and becomes more specific. Now this happens also in other places in John. I'll just give you a couple from memory, but... When the dove descended and remained upon him at the baptism of Jesus. You remember that, as he was baptized and the dove remains upon him. This signified the beginning of his public ministry. It's from that point that things changed. And he launches out into a public ministry. Later in this same book, you will have a time when they're having uh, breaking the bread together. And Jesus says to Judas, what you're going to do... Do quickly. He went out, and it was night. From that point forward, what Judas does, everything changed. It becomes very specific that he's going to sell out the Savior of the world for 30 pieces of silver. Well, here, however we deal with this, these Greeks coming and desiring to see Jesus change the focus of everything. Now my hour has come. That's what he's going to say in response to the Greeks coming. And just to remind you, because I will forget, uh, because I moved too slow, but nevertheless, 
It is only from here to the cross about six days. And it might take us six years to get to the cross as slow as preach, but that's fine. I just want you to know that from this point to the cross is only about six days. So everything's going to happen very quickly, even though I may preach very slowly. All right. Point number one, they sought Jesus, verses 20 through 22. These Greeks, it's a reference to Gentiles, Greeks, Gentiles, not Jews. Gentiles who come from any Greek-speaking part of the world. And possibly even as near as the city of Decapolis, they could have come from there. There are some who hold that these are proselytes, that these Gentiles who have fully converted over to Judaism. I do not believe that that is the case, because there's other evidence that there are Gentiles, or Greeks, who feared God and worshipped God, who were not Jewish proselytes. They had not converted to, to Judaism in full. I think there's just a lot of people that are caught up in the worship of God, but it doesn't mean that they're Christian. They're just worshiping God, and they're going to these festivals for whatever their motive may be, but they have not come to biblical conversion yet. Now, I'll give you three examples of that. One of those would be the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, you don't have to turn there, just remind you of this story. But this Ethiopian eunuch, before his conversion, the text says, he rose and went. There was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. He'd gone there for the purpose of worship, but he hasn't experienced conversion. He's just a worshiper of God. You also remember Acts 16, Lydia was worshiping God, but she was not a Christian yet. God had to open her heart. Also in Acts chapter 10, at Caesarea, there was a man by the name of Cornelius. He was a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. He was a devout man who feared God with all of his household. He fears God, all of his household fears God. He gives alms generously to the people, and he prays continually to God. The only thing is, he's not a convert. It's not until Peter comes and explains the gospel that he's converted. And then you have a centurion in Luke <clears throat> chapter 7. Generous man, very generous. He loves, it says of him that he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. He funded the building of a synagogue, but he wasn't even a convert yet. I'm only telling you these three or four references to say there are Gentile or Greek people who feared God, who prayed, and went to Jerusalem to worship, but they were not converted yet. It was just a heart of worship. It shouldn't be that hard for us to grasp. Even in this building, there are people who come to worship, but are not converted not repented and believed upon Christ, and the old has passed away and they become new. Churches all across the world are filled with worshipers. You can go to Mexico, you can go to Honduras with me, you can go and look into the temples, and they can be full of people there to worship, but yet they've not been converted. And so here are these Greeks who have come, these Gentiles, they can't go into the inner court. We know this to be true. They can't go into the inner court because there's a death sentence that hangs over a Gentile if he was to go into the inner court. 
And they have warning signs everywhere to keep you out of the inner court. You remember, this verse will make a whole lot more sense to you now. Ephesians 2.14, warnings were posted on the barrier. In Ephesians 2.14, the dividing wall of hostility. It's the dividing wall. Jews over here, Gentiles over here. It separated the inner courts from the outer courts of the Gentiles. All you need to gather from this is, everybody's come for this festival to worship God. Jews and Gentiles, they're all here. We saw the crowd last week. Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. All of this celebration, everybody's stirred up. A guy who can raise people from the dead is coming into town on a stinking mule. Everybody's singing, everybody's celebrating. The city is in a great hubbub. Now, they come to show honor to God. They worship God, they fear God, they give alms, they pray continually. They're even, this one guy's even willing to build a synagogue for uh, the worship of God, but it does not mean that they are Christian. However, there are some seeking Jesus. Would you be among the crowd today seeking Jesus? I've heard about Christianity. I've seen the lives of all you hypocrites. I've watched the world and where it goes. But I've come to this point. Maybe you could say this this morning. I've come to this point. I just want to see Jesus. I want to get a glimpse of His beauty and who He is. And I want to be distracted with everything else. I just want an interview with Jesus. That's these Greeks. And their phrase simply says, Sir... We wish to see Jesus. Now, if you want it contextually right, the word wish, wish to see, means we want to have an interview with Jesus. They're requesting a sit-down interview where we can have a discussion. We, we worship God, we've heard all of this stuff, but we want to talk this out with Jesus. It's a great way, it's a great approach. And I say it's the idea of an interview because that's the way the word is used in the New Testament in other places. And so several times in Luke, twice, and in Acts, it's always in the context of not see like, oh, there he goes, or I caught a glimpse of him, but see or wish to see meaning to sit down, ask questions, and hear answers, and to have this dialogue where we can understand, is Jesus the Messiah? Who is he? And they can dialogue this thing out. That's all that's going on here as these Greeks come. They desire to have that interview. Now, I won't belabor your time or work this out too long, but the question does remain, why do they go to Philip? It's not all that noble of a question, but at least we should ask it. Why does he go to Philip? Why does Philip take it to Andrew? What's going on here? Philip happens to be a Greek name. It's a Greek name, but Philip is a Jew. Andrew is a Greek name, but he is a Jew. Perhaps they have an association because of their Greek name, perhaps because they lived in a nearby city and they'd actually run across them before and they felt that it was more uh, accessible to approach Philip and Andrew than any of the other ten. Whatever you make of it, we know they went and sought Philip. Well, it's a problem for Philip. He doesn't know what to do with these Greeks. What am I supposed to do with them? 
why is he hesitating with whether or not to take them to Jesus? Matthew chapter 10. Earlier in the apostles' ministry, Jesus sent 12 people out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles. Well, that's what Jesus had said. Don't go to the Gentiles. Don't enter into the house of the Samaritans. You just go to the lost house of the sheep of Israel. Okay, Jesus said Israel only, and these Gentiles want to come to him. I don't know if he wants to talk to them. I'm not sure what to do. So for Philip, it's a problem. He doesn't know what to do with the problem. Andrew's the problem solver. Well, I'll tell Andrew. Surely, Andrew will know what to do. So, interesting side note, perhaps. They take the problem to Jesus, not the Gentiles. And kind of evangelistically here, we should take people to Jesus, not their problem. But it's just a side note. But they take their problem to Jesus. And I, I can't help the story here, and I can't look anywhere else here. I can just give you the obvious things. We lose them at this point. Did they ever have the conversation? Did they ever have the interview? What did Jesus tell them? What went on? Are they still standing outside somebody giving, waiting on somebody to give them word? I don't know. I just know Philip and Andrew went and told Jesus, and then we break off into this other discussion, and I don't know what has happened with these Greeks, because the text doesn't tell us what happened to them. They disappear from the narrative. So Jesus speaks to the situation, not to the Gentiles. Here's the situation. What's the situation? The Jews are not receiving the message. The Jews are not receiving me as the Messiah. So, what are we going to do with the rejection by the Jews? I think there's at least somewhat of a parallel between what happens with these Greeks and what happens in Romans 9 through 11. When the Jews will not receive the word, they take the message to the Gentiles, and you get all this uh, information about election and predestination in Romans 9 through 11, and say, my house is going to be full. Or maybe it's a parallel with Matthew 22, and they invite everybody, and everybody's too busy to come, everybody's too busy to worship. He says, I tell you what, you go out into the byways and the highways and the hedges where all the poor people are, and you invite them, because my house is going to be full. So maybe that's what's going on here. Here's the sign. Now the Gentiles want in on this. They can't get in unless there's a crucifixion and a resurrection. So these are going to take place in order that the gospel can go to the Gentile nation. Now, verse 23. A significant hour it is. He says in verse 23, Jesus said to them, The hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. Now that phrase may not wet your whistle or entertain you in any degree, but it did impact them. And I believe they knew that something changed at this point. I will give you the references. John 2.4. This is how it has been worded up to this point. John 2.4. He says, Woman, what, do, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It's not time yet. Then you go to John 4, 21. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming. Talking about the Samaritan woman, John 4. The hour's coming. Not here yet. Then you go to John 4, 23. But the hour is coming. It's just around the corner, if you will. John 7, 30. 
They were seeking to arrest him. They surround him. They have authority to arrest him. But for some odd reason, no one laid a hand on him. Why? His hour had not yet come. And then you get to John 8.20. He had spoke these words in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him. He's right there in public view. Everyone can see him, and they just can't figure out how to put the cuffs on the guy. Why not? Well, because his hour had not yet come. Can you please see something here? Nobody arrests Jesus for his time. The whole world can't kill him before his time. He's on a divine timetable, and man cannot thwart that. No matter how much they may exercise their supposed free will, they cannot override providence. Or in our own current text now, John 12, 23, that's where the tense changes. Now, my hour, the hour has come. And then you'll see that change go over into chapter 13. His hour had come, John 13, 1. John 17, 1. Father, the hour has come. From this point to the cross is Jesus' hour. Please listen. Because this is going to be very applicable to every individual within the room. This is my path. This is my course. This is what I'm here for. I'm going to a cross to be slaughtered. I'm going to be spit upon. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to have people wag their heads at me. I'm going to have people mock me and do shameful things towards me. I'm going to have people beat me and pull my beard out. I'm going to have people shove a spear through my side. I'm going to have people take nails and nail them through my hands. This is my hour. This is why I came. It is cross before crown. We live in America and we want ice cream before our green beans, right? Give me the good stuff first, I'll get around the other stuff maybe later. That's not the way Jesus walks. You go to the cross before you ever see the crown. You go to the cross before you ever enter into glory. This is my hour. This is the whole purpose. This is the climax. This is the superlative event of every reason Jesus has come. I have come to die. When would Jesus come to die where I can live? And if I don't die, I won't live. If I don't die, you won't live. There must be a substitutionary death on the behalf of sinners. That's why I've come. This is my hour. Here is all of my pomp. Here is all of my glory. Here is all of my praise. Stripped naked and slaughtered on Calvary's tree. It's not the way we do it as Americans. When it's our day, we get balloons and confetti. And we make a cake and we say, congratulations, you've done well. You're a super guy. It's all about you. And we all clap. That's just the American way. We know how to praise people and to lift them. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that at the heart of the gospel, that's not the way it works. Jesus doesn't come and say, here I am. Everybody swing around me. Make me king. Here I am. Everybody vote for me. And I'll run. No, I've come for this hour. You see the singularity. Do you see the specificity of Christ? I will not be detracted from death. I'm not going to be deviated over here 
over there because the whole city is cheering for me and saying, Hosanna, the praises of men will not distract me from this narrow path that I'm walking. I'm going to that tree. I'm laying down on that cross. I'm bearing your sins. And I'm going to rise from the dead on the third day because that's my hour. And my Father will give me great glory as I give him great glory because we made this covenant before the world began. This is our The glory refers to the climax of the work of redemption. In John 7:39, the spirit is given after the death, burial and resurrection. It says, quote, "Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified he's glorified on the cross everything's going to change to a different sense John 12 16 his disciples didn't understand they didn't get what's going on on the triumphal entry they didn't connect all the dots as my friend Paul Merrill would say they need to connect the dots and they couldn't connect the dots of what was going on but after he was glorified then they put the dots together now they comprehend what's going on or John 12, 28, a later text that we will get to, signifying the beginning of the completion of Jesus' ministry. Father, glorify your name. Father, glorify your name. A voice came from heaven. I've glorified it, and I'll glorify it again. I glorified it at your baptism. I'm going to glorify it on the cross. I'm going to glorify it in the resurrection. I'm all about the Father glorifying His Son. By the way, i just throw this in as a side note because I don't think we ever think this way. Exactly what do you need to do to bring glory to Christ? We always say these things in Reformed circles. You know, it's all about the glory of God, to the glory of God alone. It's all about His glory, 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 glory. Do you actually understand that the way He's glorified is by death? The way in which the Christian glorifies King Jesus is that you die to yourself. Do you understand that? That you say no to your flesh and you put your flesh to death and you say Christ is preeminent. My flesh wants to do this and I say no, I'm going to do this because it's more important for Him to be glorified. Do you work that way? Do you daily die saying it's not about me? I'm following a man who died to self. I want to be that way in order that he gets the glory. Do you ever think like that? Is this church stuff, just some kind of tradition we go through? and We go through these religious parades. At what point and in what way are you dying? How are you doing it? What are you dying to? We live in a culture of grab it, take it, it's for me. All of this stuff i got to have, got to have, got to have, got to have. When was the last time you told yourself no? In order that you could put Christ first. When was the last time? Is your life being developed by this pattern? To hell with everything else. I just want Christ to get the glory he deserves. But we're American. And here's what we do. Our thinking works different. I can work Jesus in with all the other stuff. 
That way I can have my cake and eat it too. So I did the religious thing, and I do this thing, and we've mastered multitasking that we can keep up with every event. Every event with our kids, every event with our own, our own class of people, every event with what's going on in the social world, every event that's going on on Facebook. I can, I can stay busy with all of these things, and I got my Jesus sticker on all of them. And you see how I've worked him in? Jesus said, it don't work that way. I demand preeminence. It's all about me. He, he deserves every ounce of effort. He is the superlative of superlatives. He is the preeminent of preeminent. He's the king. He's the glory. He is everything. He's the very thing that ought to make you tick. It ought to make your heart to beat. Everything ought to be consumed in you for the glory of Christ. The seeking of these Gentiles of verse 23 signified the future scope of a global gospel. The thing needed for Jew and Gentile to be joined into one family of God is the completion of the gospel. And that is coming at the cross of Calvary. The hour, according to Jesus, is now. No, no, in all of the prayer in the garden and the sweating of the drops of blood, all of these things is not seeking the way of escape. He now moves into the final stage stages of his mission now we come to verses 24 and 25 uh, these are the last ones i won't make the fourth point this morning look at 24 and 25 again sowing seed see if you see it there in your text verse 24 amen amen i say to you unless the grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies I think the definite article that's not in the ESV, ESV says A, but the definite article is surely there in the Greek. The definite article is pointing to the, the Lord Jesus himself. He says, truly, truly, I send to you unless the grain of wheat, meaning himself, this grain of wheat, unless it falls in the earth and dies. What, what is he saying? Unless I go to a cross and am slaughtered and die, there's no fruit that will be born. Anybody knows anything about farming and agriculture, of which they certainly did, understands this. I worked on a farm for two years. We had 4,000 acres. We planted corn and cotton. And so you plant the corn. You got eight hoppers of corn. You drive your tractor down through there and all this corn goes through. Well, some corn doesn't get in the dirt and it falls off to the side. That corn doesn't die. It doesn't germinate. It doesn't produce anything. If you had a piece in your hand, you just throw it to the side because it's too late now. Unless it's planted and dies, it won't germinate. If it don't germinate, in a couple of weeks when you drive by, you're not going to see anything green coming up. But if you see something green coming up, there's hope. And it'll come up and it'll make two ears of corn. If it's a good year, two, two ears per stalk. Um, you might get a rare one with three, but most generally one or two ears of corn. And you look on there and you count all those pieces of corn. I don't know what the number is, but it's radically higher than one. One has to die to produce a manifold of fruit. And without the death, there's no germination and there's no fruit. And that's what Jesus is saying here. These Gentiles have come and he says, look, the grain, me, Jesus, must be put in the earth and die. And if that doesn't happen, there's not going to be any fruit for the kingdom of God. Don't distract me. But Jesus would even say something like this to the lead guy, Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Don't distract me. I know what I'm doing. I'm going to this cross because unless that happens, no fruit. And Jesus, think about it, Jesus would have a barren ministry. 
If he doesn't die, nobody makes it to the kingdom. What a failure he would be. Simply, if it doesn't go in the ground and die, it remains alone. And if Jesus wouldn't have died a substitutionary death on the cross, they would have just discarded him and moved on to the next religious leader. And we probably wouldn't even know his name this day. However, if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, let's get into this next section while we have time. Verse 25, and this is where we'll end this morning. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I'm going to give you the gospel, two-part gospel here. Here's gospel part number one, forfeit, forfeit. You see, if you love your life on earth, you're going to lose it. Now, what we have to do is we have to understand what the word life means here. If you love this worldliness that we calls, call life, and you gravitate to sustain yourself in this thing we call worldly life, which thousands and billions are doing in all of their efforts to sustain their existence, their life, the end result is not only are they never going to have it, they're not even going to have it in eternity. Maybe we could define life like this. What is this type of life? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of possessions. If you love that, you're going to lose everything. It's dangerous with eternal consequences to love life on the earth. The implication of this phrase is a warning to those who are worldly. Exactly how shipwrecked would you be if you lost everything today? Exactly how much turmoil and depression would you go? Be honest with God. How much depression would you go into today if your house burnt down, the stock market crashed, and your 401k went to the bottom of the ocean? Exactly how depressed would you be? Well, I, I don't know what I'd do. Maybe you've set too much things on this life. And you love your money, and you love your house, and you love your stuff, and you're hanging on to all of it with both hands, and you love it so much, you insurance, and you love it so much, you put security cameras on it, and you guard all your stuff, and you hang on to all your stuff, because you flat just love your stuff. Jesus says, you're going to lose it all. You ain't taking one bit of it into eternity. And we yawn because we stay up too late at night. We sit through church service and we walk out the door. And quite frankly, we don't even care. It's a shame. Like, even here, we're so religious. Even, you go out, I can't even make people mad anymore. I stood in the back of my truck on a tailgate preaching my heart out Friday night. And nobody even got mad. I at least like to tick somebody off every now and then. Not any fun when they just look at you like you're a goon. To love one's life is a fundamental, this is D.A. Carson, to love one's life is a fundamental denial of God's sovereignty, of God's rights, and a brazen elevation of self to the center of perception. And therefore, an idolatrous focus on self, which is near to the heart of all sin. 
the person who does so will lose. Apalumi, apalumi, uh, to cause or experience destruction, ruin, destroy. Lose something that one already has, be separated from a normal connection for it to be lost. Can you think about that just for a moment on a Sunday morning? Those things you're hanging on to with both hands, I'm telling you straight up from the lips of Jesus, you're going to lose it. You're going to lose your house. You're going to lose your 401k. You're going to lose your retirement. You're going to lose all your stuff. You're going to lose your car. You're going to lose everything that you got. You're not taking one piece of it to glory. You're going to lose every bit of it. Why do you put in so much time to pay for the babysitter where both of you can work to pay all of these bills to keep all of your stuff that you can't keep? You can't keep it. And you work your whole life, if you live to 80, you work your whole life to keep it. And you'd be, you'd be in a state, you're sitting there in your house, and you're just about to go into the nursing home, and you're sitting there in your house, and this whole place you've worked on your whole life is all grown up because you can't mow the yard no more, and the house is starting to fall apart because you can't maintain it anymore, and you're like, what have I done with my time? Then you got to stand before a holy God. Masses of people seeking to preserve life on earth rather than dying to self for the glory of God. That's gospel part one. Gospel part two. Whoever hates his life on earth says so there in our text. And here I do the same thing as David Miller as he does with Romans. Hate means, well it means hate. Whoever hates his life on earth same life, worldliness, busyness, all of those things encompassed in this life that he's talking about. A person who hates this life is going to keep it. We'll talk about the it in just a moment. They're not seeking self-preservation. They're not seeking to somehow preserve themselves here. It, this is not any different than the Gospel of Mark and other places. Mark eight thirty four. If anyone, anyone would come after Jesus, this is what to happen if you you're going to come after jesus you must deny yourself you die to self you deny yourself and then you do what well you take up a cross what in the world does that mean it means you prepare to die look jesus knew when he walked out of town with that cross he wasn't coming back you don't go out there on this cross and come back you're going to be slaughtered Anyone does not deny himself and take up his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Here is a man hating this life. Here is a man, quote, who chooses not to pander to self-interest, but at the deepest level of his being declines to make himself the focus of his interest and perception, thereby dying, living for someone else. Functioning for someone else. My whole life consumed in another. To sell everything I got and buy this field because there's a pearl of great value. And that's all I want is Him. I hope somebody gets this stuff. It is true. He says you'll keep it. The Greek word is philoso. Philoso is to guard. To guard something. To protect something. If you would distance yourself from this world, you would die to self, then you could guard it. What's the it? It's life rightly defined by God. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come to give life 
and life to the abundance. Okay, well, you can keep that one, the abundant life, if you hate this life. Are you tracking this? I'm going to do Vody Bacham. Are you picking up what I'm laying down? The only way you can have life to the abundance is die to the life the world's offering you. Your selfish motivation for Americanism has to die. If it does, then you can have life because then you'll be free. You'll be in Christ and you can live for His glory. And here's the future verse coming. The next verse is going to say, and if you'll do that, the God of the universe will honor you. You, you, do you get that? The God of the universe takes and sets you in the place of honor in the kingdom of God? That's what happens to people who die to self for the glory of Christ. Eternal life. Eternal life. Taking up and following Jesus. Taking up the cross and following Jesus. Death plus following equals eternal bliss. This is the Christ model. He went to the cross and died. He was buried and he rose from the dead. He really lives eternally and so do those who have followed the same model. Die to self. Get a passport and go to Honduras with me. You know, die to self, take a week off work and go to Syracuse. You know, die to self, get up on Saturday and go to the abortion clinic. You know, die to self, set apart what you want to do and cook food. We can have a fellowship meal back here today. You know, die to self, forget what's going on at your house and make sure the church house is taken care of. You know, die to self, stop worrying about your reputation and how you look and make sure you promote Jesus and all of his glory. You know, die to self, Turn off all the things that are feeding your flesh and turn on the things that will feed your soul. Would you die to self because of the value and the glory of Christ? As Brother Jeff comes, let me pray. Father, even in this room, there are those who love life here on earth and all the things and all the stuff. Lord, today, would they come to a place of hating that life and they would fall in love with King Jesus. And pray for this church that it would be obvious and evident that there's more concern for the glory of Christ than there is for the pampering and the plotting of the human flesh. Lord, help us to be a people who live for King Jesus and follow Him on the same road that He walked. We pray these things by your Spirit in Christ's name. Amen.